0: Welcome to Kuratuturu, Real Gold, the podcast series that explores all things heritage and research. Each year, Auckland Libraries works with scholars from the Auckland History Initiative, a research collaboration at the University of Auckland. In this series, we present research projects from the 2023 summer scholars exploring aspects of Tamaki Makoto, Auckland's history. Students spend 12 weeks over the summer break exploring the varied and rich archives on a subject of their choice under the supervision of Professor Linda Breda and Dr. Jessica Parr. In this track we hear from Auckland Libraries Heritage Trust John Stackpole's scholar Katia Kennedy, who investigated the attitude surrounding a woman in sport from the turn of the 20th century. Katia examines the development and growth of women's cricket and women's marching in Auckland during this time.
1: Hi everyone, as Jess said, my name is Katia and I chose to research women's sport in Auckland. Before I start, I'd like to thank the Auckland Library Heritage Trust for funding this project, as well as the Auckland Libraries for their help and use of their collections and photos. The Footprints collection in particular was invaluable to this project. I looked at the development of women's sports from around the late 1880s to 1980s. In particular, I looked how the development of these sports varied depending on whether they were considered masculine or feminine sports. In doing so, it became increasingly clear that the attitudes towards sports sports women reflected the ever-evolving societal views surrounding women in Auckland. For this, I used two different case studies, women's cricket and competitive marching. This is one of my favorite photos from the Footprints collection. It is titled, Not Another Sewing Sewing Circle, and was taken from the bottom of a scrum of a women's rugby team. I think this sets the tone quite nicely and shows that despite the criticism and backlash sportswomen faced, they continued to play because they loved it. I started by looking very broadly at women's sports in the late 19th century and the attitudes towards it. As a general rule, women were very involved in outdoor activities and played sports like hockey and tennis frequently alongside men. This is a photo of a women's doubles match in Cleveland in 1914. As you can see, the clothes worn during this time are quite different to the tennis outfits worn today, which will become a point of discussion later. Around the turn of the century, women began to form and participate in organized sports. This was the cause of some very vocal criticism and concern for these women's health. This quote comes from the Ladies' Mirror. It was written by an anonymous woman doctor who was defending sport as a pastime for women, but it was also a very common sense sentiment Any form of sport which entails the danger of twisting or sudden wrenches is always bad for women, as all sorts of misplacements may occur. Hockey, jumping and long distance walking all come under this heading. During this time, there were three different categories women's sports could be sorted into. The first were sports like basketball and tennis. These were played by both men and women and were very often played together. The non-contact nature made it acceptable for everyone to enjoy. The second were feminine sports. These included, but were not limited, to sports like hockey, netball, dancing, and marching. Such sports were acceptable enough that they fit the popular taste, which was still elevated enough to insist upon grace and beauty in such exhibitions by female athletes. This quote comes from a disclaimer at the end of an Auckland Star article when a discussion on women's rugby arose. It ensured the readers that despite them publishing a letter written in defense of women's rugby, they did not necessarily agree with it. And lastly, women could play also play masculine sports, sports like rugby, soccer, and cricket. These sports tended to spark more criticism and resentment from the public. Many men saw women as invading their spaces. As this concerned gentleman wrote into the New Zealand sportswoman, they run, they swim, they ride, they play cricket, golf, and even football. They box and they wrestle. As it would appear, the post-World War II sentiment that women needed to retreat to their societal positions they had occupied prior to the war had seeped into the realm of sports, and not for the first time displayed how sport was a conduit for social trends surrounding women to be expressed. Opposition and criticism towards women in these sports was the most common, and as a general rule, these sports had a much slower and steeper climb in development. The first case study I looked at was women's cricket. The Auckland Women's Cricket Association, or AWCA, was formed in 1928 and organized weekly Saturday games, the structure of which still exists today. A major drawback for the association was a lack of players and the struggle to raise interest. Early teams were made up of members from other organizations, like the Women's Hockey Association and the Young Women's Christian Association. In 1935, the AWCA was granted a trophy by Pearl Dawson. Today, the Pearl Dawson Trophy is one of the competitions premier women around Auckland compete for in a T20 Championship. This usually falls after Christmas and the final of this year's competition is in a few weeks. The same year, the first professional Auckland team was formed to play against the touring English team. In light of the upcoming game, uniforms became a a popular topic of discussion. This photograph is of the 1935 Auckland team. The uniform the AWCA settled on for the match was white blouses and divided skirts called longs. Before this, conversations arose around whether, to chain, whether a change in the rules was needed because women cricketers' long skirts would occasionally deflect the ball and prevent wickets. In a letter to the Auckland Sun, an anonymous observer noted that no possibility of having to legislate, legislate the skirt before wicket was foreseen." And if skirts are abolished, there will be an outcry against that. As we can see, women playing cricket and the uniforms became a reflection of the discussions surrounding the changing styles of women's clothing during this time. Individual contributions was a major point in the development of women's cricket, in particular, the contributions of women like Dorothy Dot Simons. Dot Simons was a sportswoman, sports journalist and author, As a young woman, she played both hockey and cricket. Dot was the chairman of the AWCA for multiple seasons. She was the first life member of the New Zealand Women's Cricket Council and chairman of it from 1947 to 51. In 1966, Dot was appointed president of the International Women's Cricket Council, and in 1974, she received an OBE for her contribution to women's sport. Dot was also single-handedly responsible for much of the media coverage women's cricket received in the 1970s. As a sports writer for the Auckland Star, she was responsible for a large portion of the articles written on women's sport. In 1982, she also published her book, The New New Zealand's Champion Sportswoman. The book profiled 26 different athletes from 16 sports across the country. Her work was what women's cricket needed to gain the public awareness and support it would need in later years when other sports became more popular. Her work pushed sportswomen out from the fringes of Auckland society and into mainstream awareness. For my next, next case study, I looked at competitive marching. Marching was a New Zealand phenomenon that exploded into popularity in Auckland. By the 1960s, almost every suburb in Auckland boasted at least one marching team. It began as a recreational activity, loosely based on the army manual of elementary drill teams of at least nine girls would execute moves from the manual to brass or pipe band music. It was a highly technical sport, and this drew some criticism. One particular New York Times article described it as unnatural and unfeminine, and ultimately an outlet of hidden fascism. Despite some criticism, marching was immensely popular. Much of the praise, much of the praise marching received in the 1950s seems to stem from its affirmation of the ideal female figure. For example, in response to the New York Times article, the Quick March magazine stated that the sport might embellish many sylph like figure with muscle as to create a new generation of rolling pin dictators in the kitchen. Marching appears to have been an acceptable sport for women to participate in because of its non-strenuous nature and its reinforcement of gender roles. As we can see, marching was a very colourful sport. Uniforms were expected to be made from contrasting and bright colours, but were not supposed to clash. Alongside the technical judging, uniforms were marked on both attractiveness and cleanliness. A high level of detail was expected, down to the laces of marching boots. The laces needed to remain white and to be laced in an identical fashion across the team. The uniformity also extended to the girls' undergarments as well any underwear that became visible during the display would be judged along with the rest of the uniform. In order to avoid losing points, teams would often buy underwear in bulk and distribute them to team members along with the uniforms. This would extend to the girls themselves. Some instructors preferred the girls to look as identical as possible. This involved wearing leg paint or self-tanning lotion to ensure the girl's skin color was the same across the team. Some instructors even preferred the girls to be the same height and size, Naturally, this was quite problematic. Marching reached its peak of popularity in the 1970s and 1980s, just as women's cricket was beginning to take off. Unlike cricket, marching did not have a men's version of the sport to contend with, and so was able to flourish because of it. It's strenuous, but not physically taxing nature meant that it was the perfect female sport of its time, and yet has disappeared almost completely. So why did this happen? There are many theories. One argument to be made is that the nature of marching and its intense focus on perfectionism and young women fell suspect to the second wave feminism in the 1980s. Another contribution to its decline was the commercialization of many sports between the 1970s and 1990s. In order to maintain the increasing cost and complexity of women's sports bodies, many women's organizations sought corporate sponsorship or amalgamated with men's organizations. For example, in 1992, the New Zealand Women's Cricket Council was absorbed into the men's cricket body, which became the New Zealand Cricket Council. Marching did not have a counterpart like this, and so did not have this option. The rise of other recreational sports and changing work patterns all contributed to the decline in marching. Like cricket, sports that were male-dominated suffered from similar issues. A recurring theme for the 1970s was the sexualisation of sportswomen. An Auckland Star article published in 1974 praised the success of women's tennis. However, this was the introduction. I doubt I'll ever glance at a game of men's tennis again. The ladies are so much more enjoyable to watch. Tennis girls seem to be leading the world of sport in a rush to wear less and less. The author also went on to comment on how grateful he was that the days of dull ankle-length dresses, like those worn in 1914, were over. This is eerily similar to a quote from 1891, which goes to show how little the views of sportswomen have changed in in 80 years. The sterner sex, allured no doubt, by the graceful flutter of feminine garments as the wearers flitted to and fro, rackets in hand. Other sports like rugby also suffered from similar sentiments and comments of women lib invading the field. The general mood of this time appears to be that if women were going to participate in masculine sports, they owed it to the male viewers to look as attractive as possible while doing so. However, quite recently, such sports have made significant progress. Women's rugby made history last year by winning the Women's Rugby World Cup, and they did so in a sold-out Eden Park Stadium, indicating that perhaps for the first time, public interest in women's rugby and women's sport in general was at an all-time high. Women's cricket too has made great leaps and bounds within the last decade. In 2014, the top 10 women cricketers in New Zealand were awarded annual contracts for the first time. And last year, almost a decade later, the entry fees to women's and men's matches were changed to the same price, both international and domestic games. This is a photograph I took of the last Super Smash game in Auckland between the Auckland Hearts and the Wellington Blaze. And this season of domestic games has been the first time equal entry fees have been made for both men and women matches. As it appears, criticism for women's sports can be found since the beginning. And although the development of women's sport has been long and slow going at times, there is no denying the enjoyment that is has shone through in these photographs. Like this photo of members of the Papato'i Women's Bowling Club celebrating their club's 50th Jubilee. This quote is also one of my favourites. It was written in the, in the ladies' mirror in praise of women's sports and to encourage more to participate. And I think it sums up this project quite nicely. Somehow, whenever women try to do anything active, instead of crocheting anti they always have to face a great deal of derision.
0: You've been listening to an Auckland Libraries Heritage Talk. Student research undertaken by Frederick Vaught, Katia Kennedy and Samuel Turner O'Keefe we're supported by the Auckland Libraries Heritage Trust, John Stackpole Scholarship. To find out more about the work of the Auckland Libraries Heritage Trust, visit Auckland Libraries' website. These talks are also available on the Auckland Libraries' YouTube channel. Thanks to the Auckland History Initiative and especially to the student creators for this talk series. Check out our other podcast offer and follow to be informed about new content being published on this platform. Mā te wa.